Sorry to do this to you. Sorry to talk about school because it just got out and it's summer. But do you remember when the teacher or your professor would say, this is important? If you were smart at all, you knew that you should take notes on that because it was probably gonna come back and be on the test or something. Or if you've ever taken a lab science and the teacher or the professor says, I'm gonna show you how to do this, you know that you're gonna need to know how to do that. So you probably better pay attention to them showing you what to do. Because if you don't pay attention, you're either gonna have to figure it out on your own or it's gonna end up being on the test and you'll get the answer wrong. So the passage that we're looking at today is a kind of pay attention to this type of text. So we've gotten in the uh, Sermon on the Mount to the section on the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer actually has two parallel passages. There's this passage here in Matthew 6, and then it actually comes up again in Luke chapter 11. Because Jesus, like any good teacher, repeats what he said. Because it helps to re reinforce things in people's minds, and people tend to forget what they've heard. So it's good to go over particularly the important things. And it's also why you find different things, different sayings of Jesus, different teachings at different places in the gospel, because Jesus probably brought them up several times. Jesus has a set of themes that he returns to. So with the Lord's Prayer, there one time it's brought up in response to something positive, and one time it's brought up in response to something negative. And Luke 11.1 1 is when it's brought up in something positive, the context of something positive. It says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. So Jesus has been praying. The disciples are like, hey, Jesus, we see you praying a lot. You seem to be really good at it. Prayer is kind of a struggle for us. We tend to fall asleep. We notice that other people have given their followers instructions on how to pray, so we thought you could do the same for us. And Jesus is like, sure and he gives them the Lord's Prayer in response. The negative example is from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has just talked about prayer, and he says, don't do it this way. Don't put on a show. Prayer isn't about impressing other people. Instead of praying like that, pray like this. And that gets us to our passage today. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. First, as you listen to this passage, What's missing? Well, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever isn't there. It's added to some later manuscripts, but it's probably a pretty early addition. Either Jesus said it at one time or people added it pretty quickly. Most think, people think that it was added as sort of a liturgical, for liturgical use. Because have you ever like been praying in a group and someone else was praying and they didn't say amen and there was just this long pause and you're sitting there with your eyes closed going, are they done? Do I look around and see if everyone else is looking at me? It's that kind of thing. It needed an ending and for, the king, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever made a nice ending for that. So that's missing because it's added later. Second, what's added to the text that we just read? 
Well, it's the part about forgiveness at the end. And it seems to be an odd addition to the end of the prayer. So we'll do some exploring about why it's there later. But first, let's look at the prayer itself. So this is a prayer that Jesus gives his disciples that's supposed to be prayed over and over and over. And as we discussed last week, rote prayer bothers some people, and, and that's fine. Mostly, it's what you're used to. When Jesus says, this then is how you should pray, you can read this one of two ways. Either use these exact words or make sure you cover these concepts. And either one is fine. But just however you interpret that, create grace for other people. If you don't like written prayers, don't criticize people for not praying from their hearts. And if you like written prayers, don't point out the fact that most people have their own pet things they pray for that become fairly rote. Pray as you can, not as you can't, and let other people do that too. So then here's the structure of the prayer. It starts with an address, our Father in heaven, and then there are five requests. Hallow your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, give us our daily bread, forgive our sins, and don't lead us into temptation. So the address, our Father in heaven. I love what Dallas Willard says about this. The address is important. It's one of the things that distinguishes prayer from worrying out loud or silently, which many unfortunately have confused with prayer. And that's an important distinction. We're talking to God, not just to ourselves. And if you think about it, that's pretty amazing because people have wondered for eons how to get God's attention. And the prayer begins with reminding us that we've got God's attention. I can usually barely get the attention of the server at a restaurant. So it's pretty amazing that God is paying attention when I pray to him. And it brings up a really important aspect of prayer. In prayer, you're orienting yourself toward God. And that separates this activity from the rest of your day. You've had other things going on, you've focused on other things, but in this moment, you're stopping and reorienting yourself. You're consciously focusing on the presence of God in your life. And Jesus says to pray to our Father. That's a complex and sometimes problematic image because not everyone has a positive association with their dad. And so this might be a stretch and even painful for some people. But it also can be a healing image whether your father was absentee or abusive or loving and present, Jesus offers us a picture of the ideal father. So picture in your mind, whether you had one or not, picture in your mind what the ideal father would look like. Maybe strong, caring, protecting, providing, guiding, training, constant, trustworthy, safe. What else would you add? And that's God. And that's how he chooses to relate to us. You might not be the favorite child in your family. You might feel like you got or are overlooked. But God chooses you. And he picks you to be his daughter or son and to relate to you as a perfect ideal father. Our father also places us in a family. He's our father in a community. I was reading some interesting research in the New York Times this week that said that the nuns, the people either don't have any sort of religious background at all, or the duns, but particularly the nuns, are discovering that 
In all of the other places that they look for community, they just can't find the type of deep community that you can find in the church because of the level of relationship and connection and intergenerational and service and tradition and all of those things are missing if all you've got is Little League. So we've been formed into a community that's different than any other community that's out there. In this family, we can see other people's experiences. We can learn from them. We can be encouraged by them. And we can do that right back to other people too. Our Father, the one who is in heaven. That's the literal translation. I like that. Our Father, the one that's in heaven. It talks about the imminence, that's the closest, closeness, the presence, and also transcendence, that's the greatness of God. And it puts those things together. We talk to a God who stands above it all, but is always near to us. Our Father, the one who's in heaven. What does just this first brief phrase say about where you stand? about the relationship that God has called you into, about the deeper reality around which your world is formed. When we pray, when we discover God as our Father who is in heaven, we encounter a new and different reality. We connect with something that's all around us, but that we normally don't see. And when we begin to pray, we take a moment to fix our eyes on God and orient our world around him. It's a moment of a reminder that there is something else out there. So we begin the prayer with a deep breath. Okay, you're God. You're my Father. You're close to me, but you're also above it all. And then we get to the requests. Hallowed be thy name. We don't really use the word hallow or understand it. The closest thing we have is Halloween or the Deathly Hallows from Harry Potter. But to hallow something is to recognize that it's holy that it's different, that it's set aside for a specific person, purpose. In essence, we're saying, God, may you be recognized for who you are in the world and also in my life. We sing songs like, your name is the highest, your name is the greatest. We talk about how Jesus' name is above all things. And the highest thing is the most easily seen. And so in this prayer, we're actually saying, may your name, may who you are be lifted up so that everybody can see it and then point their lives in that direction. It's a grounding moment for, for us. I'm pointing my life in the direction of this good God who's always with me and relates to me as a father does to his children. Next petition, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God essentially is where what God prefers is actually what happens. God prefers that children don't have to worry about being abused by the people who are supposed to keep them safe. God prefers that no one lacks food and clean water and housing. God prefers that everyone is valued and cared for. God prefers that people stop anesthetizing themselves with drugs and alcohol and sex and greed. God prefers that all people live in peace and safety. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. And that's what we pray for when we ask for his kingdom to come. And then Matthew has the clarification, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray that, 
We're praying that the places that we encounter, the places we go, will know the rule of God, that the things that God prefers will happen in the places that we go. So imagine God's preferences coming to pass in your doctor's office, at the memory care facility, at your school, in your family, on I-5. And I think we implicitly add, or should, thy kingdom come in my life. May I comprehend, truly understand, the truth of the kingdom, of what God has done for me, of this new reality that I can live in. May I make choices to live into the kingdom. And may I bring the kingdom with me wherever I go. Have you ever stopped to think about that? I'm bringing the kingdom with me to school, to my office, to the preschool mom's gathering in the park, to guys weekend in Vegas. How would that affect what you do if you really believe that you are bringing the area of God's preference, God's will, everywhere you went? I also think it's a wonderful way to pray for other people. Your kingdom come, your will be done in so-and-so's life. Not as judgment, you know, may they finally get their act together, but as blessing. Then one of the things I was thinking about is that Handel's great hallelujah chorus reminds us that he shall reign forever and ever. But the reality is that other kingdoms can temporary take, temporarily take the place of the kingdom of God. What kingdoms have taken the place of God maybe in your life? Personality cults? Maybe not emperor worship, but it's modern day equivalent. Deification of the state or a political party, your personal desires, your personal comfort, those are all evidences of other kingdoms because that's not where God's preference is actually happens. And so this part of the prayer helps us to check what kingdom we're actually living in. Next, give us this day our daily bread. It's the prayer for the physical things that we need, very close to the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And it is a moment for us to trust that any of the things that we need, that God will provide, gives us confidence that God will provide for our needs. And the emphasis is on provision today for what we need for today. If you remember the story of the Exodus when God provided manna in the wilderness, there was always enough for today. There wasn't any for tomorrow. And the idea was that you can trust God for what you're going to need today. And you think, but what about tomorrow? Well, Jesus addresses this when he says, tomorrow has enough worries. Worry about today. But what this reminds us of is that today I have God and I can trust God to provide and tomorrow, it will be the same. Now, of course, it's okay to plan for tomorrow, but what kills kingdom living is trusting in our planning for future security, not trusting that the God who, who promises to provide for us today will also provide for us in March. I saw it last fall. I saw an awful lot of people who had an awful lot of resources begin to panic because economists were predicting a recession in the spring. It never materialized. I saw an awful lot of people shrug their shoulders and just get on with life. We have no real security in our future. We can only trust that the God who is with us today will be with us tomorrow and the tomorrow after that.
and the tomorrow after that. And when we recognize that we can trust God for what we need today and for all of our tomorrows, that can have a truly transforming effect on how we live our lives and how we look at our relationships and how we hold our stuff. Then Jesus goes on, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. The, the force of the verb is, as we also have. Forgive us our sins as we also have forgiven those who sin against us. So a number of times as we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, we've talked about this cycle of revenge. You hurt me and I hurt you, and then you feel obligated to hurt me, and then I feel obligated to hurt you. And then it just continues to spiral out of control. Lamech in Genesis 4, which we've talked about. Jesus breaks that cycle and he introduces another cycle. It's the cycle of forgiveness. And it begins with the reality that our mistakes, our bad choices, our stupid stuff that we have done, our sins, have been forgiven. And we receive that, and then we turn around and forgive other people. And instead of further violence, it leads to restoration of relationships and human dignity. It leads to healing for us and healing for others. It keeps us from bitterness and anger when we pass along forgiveness and break the cycle of revenge. But we have to understand some key things about forgiveness. So let me just talk about a couple of aspects. Forgiveness is not the same thing as excusing. Excusing, excusing is usually what we can do. You were late for our meeting. You stepped on my foot. You told a story about me I wish that you hadn't told. Those are all excusable offenses. They aren't that big of a deal. Most of the time, we can live in excusing. Excusing says, that's okay, it's not a big deal. Forgiveness, on the other hand, says, that's not okay. It is a big deal. Forgiveness holds people accountable for their actions, which have had serious negative consequences. Forgiveness requires us to first say, you hurt me, what you did was wrong, but I choose to forgive you. It's not the same as excusing. Forgiveness holds people accountable. Forgiveness is not the same as releasing people from consequences. That's back to excusing. Some things cannot be excused. I was thinking about that horrific shooting, I think it was in 2015 in Charleston, where a young man went into uh, Mother Emanuel Church to a Bible study and shot a number of people dead after they had loved him and cared for him and prayed with him. And then I remember when they brought the young man to trial and the relatives of the victim of that shooting stood up in court and they forgave the shooter. What they didn't do was release him for the consequences of his actions. His actions were not okay. His actions were wrong. His actions were devastating to people and people's lives. There are always consequences for what we do, and forgiveness does not wipe away the consequences of the actions that we have done. It's not the same as releasing from consequences. Forgiveness is not the same thing as trusting again. I had an instance a couple of years ago, this is the first thing that popped into my mind, um, where someone did something really terrible to Megan. I wish I could tell you what it was because you would all be aghast. It was extremely painful. And honestly, I was angry. But I've forgiven them. I did it almost immediately. Not 
totally immediately, but relatively soon. I've forgiven them for what they did, but I don't trust them. And I won't put myself or her in that situation with that person again, maybe never. If, if you've been abused in a relationship, I pray that you're able to forgive so that you can gain healing and control in your life, but you don't have to go back to the relationship, even if they say they're really sorry. Trust is easily broken and it's hard to reestablish. It can take a very long time and it may never happen again. So just because you've forgiven somebody doesn't mean that you have to trust them at their word. Forgiving also is not instantaneous. Forgiveness takes time. It takes a long time for the feelings to go away. And sometimes what you need to do is just remind yourself that you are in the process of forgiving someone. It's the commitment for when the bad memories, when the hate, when the anger and the bitterness come up, to consciously letting that go. And you know that you are actually getting to the point where you have truly forgiven when you, be, when you can begin to wish the person well. That's the real sign. But forgiveness is a process. And maybe you're thinking about some instance in your life where somebody hurt you, maybe in a devastating sort of way, and you think, I can't forgive that person. Well, you can, and you really should. Because believe it or not, your lack of forgiveness, it's not hurting them. It's hurting you. Kevin Kelly, one of my new heroes, wrote, when you forgive others, they may not notice, but you will heal. Forgiveness is not something we do for others. It's a gift to ourselves. And it's also a sure sign of the kingdom of God. And then the last thing that Jesus tells us to pray is, lead us not into temptation. The prayer ends with an understanding that we are fragile and frail and broken and we need help. And this is asking God to help us. We make these commitments to follow Jesus, we mean well, but life happens. And so it's asking God to be strong in our weakness. There's this really delightful story in Matthew chapter 20, begins in verse 22, where, you know, people are people. So there's the 12 disciples and there's sometimes there's little factions in there. And there's these two disciples, uh, James and John, who kind of thought that they were more special than everybody else. And so they wanted Jesus to acknowledge that they were more special than everyone else. So they take the really brave step of sending their mother to ask Jesus if they can be more special than anyone else. And so Jesus, of course, sees right through this. And you have this picture of their mother going and asking and Jesus turning to them and saying, can you do what's going to be required of you? And James and John are like, oh, totally. And Jesus is like, yeah, I'm not so sure. It's kind of that thing. Jesus knows that we need help. And there's this wonderful proverb that is usually misquoted, Proverbs 16 and 18, that says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. It just reminds us that when we think we can do things on our own strength, on our own power, on our own willpower, we're probably setting ourselves up for a fall and disappointment. So this is, the way of saying, God, you're gonna to have to help me. You're gonna to have to protect me. If something comes my way, help see me through that. On my own, I can't. With you, I can do most anything. 
And then we get to that add-on, verse 14. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. We've talked a lot about forgiveness, so I just want to make one more comment about this. I think it's here because Jesus is creating a new community. It's the whole purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. He's creating a community of grace, a community where we can trust God and let a lot of stuff go. And our relationship to Jesus always plays out in our relationships with other people. If we can forgive, it's a sign that our hearts are being changed. It's also a sign that we have truly received forgiveness. Because to truly receive forgiveness, you have to change. Otherwise, it's not really forgiveness. If you're in an abusive relationship, unless the abuser repents, changes, he can't really be forgiven. He can ask for it, but unless he truly repents, he's just playing you. And that's somewhat the same thing with us and God. God forgives us, but if we hold on to anger and bitterness and vengeance, we haven't really been changed. We haven't really accepted the forgiveness that God offers us in Jesus, and we're kind of just playing God. Forgiveness is the true hallmark of the kingdom. It's a game changer. And when we truly receive it, and when we truly bring it with us and offer it to other people, we bring the presence of God with us where we go. So let me ask you three questions. Number one, in what ways is thinking of God as Father challenging or comforting to you? Number two, in what ways do you have trouble trusting God to provide what you need? And number three, how can you be a bringer of the kingdom into your spheres of influence? Thanks for watching. The people of Harbor Covenant Church really want you to know the love that God has for you, want to grow with you in faith, and want to serve alongside you, not only to help others do the same, but also to make our families and our communities better. If that sounds like something that you can get on board with, then like, follow, and drop us a comment in the video. Watch some more videos on our channel or come visit us on Sunday. You can find out more about Harbor Covenant Church at harborcove.church.